Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, we are delighted to have with us Congresswoman Karen Bass from Los Angeles. She chairs the Congressional Black Caucus and has been a leading voice on police reform in Washington. And before going to Congress, she was Speaker of the State Assembly starting in 2008, making her the very first black woman to lead one house of a state legislature in the United States. And as if that weren't enough, she is said to be on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president. Lots to talk about. Congresswoman Karen Bass, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me on. We are delighted that you're here. And I want to begin by talking about one of your colleagues who we lost this uh, week, a true giant in the civil rights movement, uh, talking, of course, about John Lewis. What did you learn from him? Oh, my goodness. You know, it was just such an honor to serve with him. I mean, I've been in Congress 10 years, and whenever I would see Mr. Lewis, you know, he just was always a source of calm, steadfastness. Uh, someone who embraced everyone, even the people he disagreed with. And, you know, without a doubt, out of 535 members of Congress, you know, 100 senators, 435 House members, he was the most respected person. Democrats, Republicans, senators, and House members. And so we're going to do a tribute to him uh, tomorrow evening, and uh, the Congressional Black Caucus will lead it off but then it will be open to the entire house. And that's something that we don't do often. Usually when we do tributes on the floor, it's kind of one party or the other. And we should say we're taping this a little early. The show will run on Thursday. Um, Congresswoman, I mean, you kind of share that in uh, that quality, I think, with um, the late John Lewis, which is that you are known for getting along with folks across the aisle. Is that something that you two ever spoke about? And 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 given that you were both leaders in your own right and your own generations around civil rights, like is, is that something that you think comes out of that type of movement that you need to be able to figure out how to sort of build bridges? Well, absolutely. And what I learned from him is uh, how you can do that, but you need to have that commitment over time. You know, I mean, all of us, especially when we're young, we want change to happen in the next hour and uh, and we want it to be dramatic change and understanding the patience of history, understanding that change can be slow. And then most important is understanding that change is not permanent. So, you know, I'm sad to say that Mr. Lewis passed away before he saw the Voting Rights Act really restored. And, uh, and after fighting and almost losing his life for it, seeing it happen, seeing it being reauthorized time and time again by, by, in a bipartisan manner, and then to experience the Supreme Court gutting it 
and it becoming a very, very hyper-partisan issue. Um, but it just means that we have to take the baton from him. It shows us what our responsibility is now. We have got to finish what he started. Soon after he died uh, and his death was announced on Saturday, you tweeted to President Trump, while the nation mourns the passing of a national hero, please say nothing. Please don't comment on his life. Uh, you mentioned that his press secretary had done it. And just you said, please let us mourn in peace. What were you thinking when you tweeted that? What, was the, what were you concerned about? It's so sad that I had to say that. But what I was really worried about was the press putting a microphone in front of the president and having him say something. And you know good and well, he would mess it up. He would start by saying something positive. He would then turn it into negative, And then it would all be about him. And I just felt like losing Mr. Lewis was so important. And, and I didn't want to see I didn't want to see him disrespect him like I believe that he, I don't think he's capable of doing anything else. And the other thing that was very troublesome to me is that he called for the flags to fly at half mass for one day. No, if they need to fly at half mass until Mr. Lewis is put to rest. And it's just those things. I mean, if he can't show empathy for the fact that we've lost 141,000 Americans, how would he feel empathy for a person who the majority of the country views as a giant, and he does not, and we know this. I mean, I want to ask you about um, the pandemic. You, you mentioned that, um, you know, this is disproportionately impacting people of color. It's preventing millions of people of all colors from working, sending their kids to school. Um, we're hearing now the president doesn't even want to put money for new testing and the CDC into an, an, another bill. What more do you think Congress should be doing and, and the federal government broadly? Because I think there's a real sense at the state and local level that they need the help. Well, you know, I think that what um, the president is trying to do is he is, well, he's using magical thinking, which he does sometimes, that all he has to do is just wish it away. I mean, remember, he said, this is going to disappear. He's still saying this is going to disappear. And that's what hurts my heart so much, because, again, people are dying by the thousands every day. And, And the role, the first responsibility of the commander in chief is to keep us safe. And he has failed that terribly. What more do you think Congress needs to do? Of course, the House has passed uh, the HEROES Act uh, with three trillion, $3 trillion. The Senate is now thinking about what to do. What, uh, you know, how optimistic are you that something meaningful is going to happen? Uh, I'm actually optimistic that it is. But you know what I don't like? I don't like that what happens here in Congress is we wait until people are suffering. Now, we knew when the expiration date was for unemployment insurance. Why do we have to wait to the last minute? Uh, under- well, well, let me just ask you, why, why do you think that is? You think it would be politically smart to get ahead of it? Well, you would think so. But under Speaker Pelosi's leadership, we passed the bill over a month ago. It's just been sitting there. And I think, and I'm not really sure Mitch McConnell's thinking. I'm really not. Because in the end, he knows he's going to do something. But I think he's holding out for a couple of things. One, I don't think he wanted to give people the extra $600 a week because some people believe that that's enough to keep folks from working. Even if there aren't jobs to go to. Even <laughs> if not very cynical. jobs to go to. And, but yet, we can give half a trillion dollars away with no accountability. They don't even want to reveal who has the money. 
and you're going to complain about individuals getting $600 a week. It's just, it's, it is shameful how they don't believe in accountability if you're wealthy and they believe in micromanagement if you are lower income. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with L.A. Congresswoman Karen Bass. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Karen Bass. She represents the 37th Congressional District in Los Angeles, which includes a very diverse swath of L.A., including Culver City, Crenshaw, Westwood, and a whole lot more. And she also chairs the Congressional Black Caucus. Congresswoman, uh, you are an L.A. native, and I think you grew up in the Venice-Fairfax area of Los Angeles. What was your childhood like? (laughs) You know, my childhood was fine. I had two amazing parents that made sure that we were safe, we had what we needed. And I grew up in a time of tremendous change, change happening all over the world, which was the reason why I made a decision at a very young age that I wanted to devote my life to social and economic justice, very similar to Mr. Lewis. And I used to sit and watch the news with my father and saw the civil rights movement on TV and uh, couldn't wait to grow up so I could participate. I know your dad was a mail carrier and your mom had a hair salon. Did she give that up before she had children or? Yes, yes. My mom was a homemaker and uh, that was important to my dad because my dad grew up never seeing his mother because his mother was a domestic. And so he wanted his children to grow up with their mother. And uh, yes, my father was a, uh, a letter carrier. And so he used to wake up super early in the morning and I'd wake up with him and listen to the news on the radio because we didn't have 24-hour TV news. 
We like that. Did, we like people listening yeah, to the radio. We do. Did I mean, were they political? Did they did you talk about the civil rights movement as a child with them? Yes, but my parents were anything but political. Uh, another, you know, similarity with Mr. Lewis. Uh, my parents did not want me involved in politics at all. They saw politics as being very dangerous and they were afraid that I would lose my life because during those years, so many right. people were being killed that they did not want me to do that. Well, in fact, one of the people you were supporting at the age of, I think, 14, maybe even volunteering for was Bobby Kennedy, who was shot and killed in Los Angeles in 1968. What, where were you when you found out about that? And what impact did that have? I was listening to it when it happened. I mean, I volunteered in his campaign. I had signed up my mother to be a precinct captain, and I walked the precinct. And uh, of course, I wanted to go to the Ambassador Hotel that night. But as a 14-year-old, my parents weren't having it. So I was laying in bed with the radio, listening and listening to him being murdered. And, you know, as a 14 year old, of course, I didn't think about it until I was much older. But that was a real traumatic event in my life and uh, definitely led to a lot of confusion as to where you go from here. Because remember, just a few months before, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And uh, remembering the assassination of JFK, I mean, I was just 10, but, um, but and then, you know, what happened to a number of the activists. So there were people, you know, dying around me. And uh, it definitely impacted my life. But again, it's one of those things that you don't quite realize until you're older. So you volunteered on that campaign um, in I'm, you ended up going um, to Cal State Doming, uh, Dominguez Hills for undergrad. I mean, were you imagining at that point that your life could go into politics? Did you, I, I don't know, just tell us about like going to college. Yeah. No way. I Well, I went to college much, er, much earlier than Cal State Dominguez. I went to San Diego State first. Oh, okay. No, I um, was very much involved in anti-war activities and uh, police abuse activities. So I have always, and I still view politics as much bigger than being an elected office. Being an elected office is just one sector, one arena. Uh, but being involved in community level politics is what I was always working on. I ran during the uh, movement to free Nelson Mandela, the anti-apartheid movement. I was running one of those organizations. So I'd always been involved on that level. The LAPD was notorious during those years in the 70s and 80s and 90s, even into well into the 90s. Uh, I'm wondering if you have three brothers. I'm wondering if they or you or your dad had any personal experience with the LAPD. Uh, I had more personal experience than I want to remember so much that I wound up being involved in a lawsuit against the police. You know what the police did during that time was they harassed anyone that was an activist. And so, you know, from... Um, just basic harassment to slashing tires, to vandalizing cars, to, you know, our police chief at the time fancied himself to be LA's version of J. Edgar Hoover. He had files on everyone, including the mayor, half the city council. Uh, people were dying of chokeholds. He went and had a press conference and basically said the reason why black people died was because the veins in our neck were different than normal people. I mean, it took us, we fought against this guy for 20 years, for over 20 years. And we had to change the city charter in order to get rid of him. Is there, I mean, how did then you make the leap into healthcare, which is sort of your first career? You've had several. Um, was that something that came out of that activism or just something that you, you know, were interested in? 
Well, I was always interested in physiology and healthcare, but you know, to me, it's it's kind of funny to talk about it now. But it never occurred to me that anybody would give me a paycheck to be politically active. So I have to have a job. So I worked in healthcare because you know, if you work in healthcare, you know, you will always have a job. So I wanted to be a PA, a physician assistant, um, and. During those years, you had to have another, you had to be in another field first. So I went to nursing school. Uh, so I went to nursing school, went to PA school, and then I joined the faculty at USC Medical School. And I was teaching when the whole crack cocaine epidemic happened. And uh, that led me to leave medicine and start my own organization. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking with Los Angeles Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass. And Congresswoman, um, obviously, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic. You have a healthcare background. What did you take away from that earlier career you had, which was in the middle of the crack cocaine epidemic, the AIDS epidemic was ha- was was going on? Uh, you know, what what lessons do you take? Well, you know, most importantly, and and I was involved. I was working in the emergency room when the this mysterious pneumonia that was impacting gay men um, started. And uh, of course, later we learned that was uh, HIV. It was the AIDS epidemic. And, um, and so uh, what I learned is, is that when you face something like that, you have to jump on it aggressively, aggressively. And uh, it's the exact opposite of what we've seen here. And I just do not believe in any way, shape or form that in the richest country in the history of the world, that we had to lose 141,000 Americans, absolutely. And I'm worried that there's no end in sight. So going back, (laughs) kind of jumping around here, you mentioned you you left healthcare to go into community organizing. You founded a group um, that really worked um, to try to make the areas of LA that you now represent safer. And some of that um, really came to a head around, you know, the beating of Rodney King in the early 90s and then the acquittal of those police officers and and the riots that followed. Can you talk about like looking back kind of what what that sparked in you then and, and what similarities you see to this moment right now? Because a lot of the work you were doing was around building multiracial coalitions at a time when there was a lot of divisions in L.A. between the Asian community and the black community, the Latino community. Well, um, when I started Community Coalition in 1990, we started it as an African-American Latino organization. And what we were really trying to do, we were fighting against all of the legislation that was being put forward that we felt was going to lead to mass incarceration because crack cocaine to me was a health issue and an economic issue. And we were criminalizing it. Now, if you fast forward to now and the uh, people are out talking about Uh, police and defund the police. And I I say it differently. I say refund the communities because really it was during those years when they started cutting all of the funding to social services and investing all of the money in building prisons and jails. So we were on the front end trying to stop that 30 years ago. So I feel like here I am 30 years later, I have been fighting every day for the last 30 years and, uh, and I'm excited now because I feel like finally the change is, is beginning to take place. You uh, got elected uh, to the Assembly in 2004. Four years later, you're the Speaker of the Assembly. And then shortly after that, you go to Congress. 
And while you were up in Sacramento, uh, not to skip over Sacramento too quickly, because you did help solve the budget deficit and work <laughs> with Republicans, but you said uh, you, you said to the LA Times, I think it was, uh, when you were asked, how do men and women deal with power differently? And you said, I think that women are much more collaborative, men are much more competitive. And then you say, and here's the funny thing, I think men are more emotional. Um, <laughs> is, so yes. that how, how does that translate to Washington? It's the same thing. <laughs> I think it's the same thing. I mean, talk about emotion. I mean, coming out of the White House, he's unglued <laughs> over there. You never know what we're going to get from one minute to the next. But um, yeah, I came away going, why is it that we're called hysterical? Uh, because I definitely found my male colleagues to be way more emotionally vulnerable. They just expressed it in different ways. And uh, yes, I do think the gender dynamic is still there. So it's interesting to me because I come here and there's a woman that's winning everything. Talking about the speaker? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> who, who I think defines unflappable in a lot of those situations. And, and if you think about it, you know, Mitch McConnell has abdicated his role. He's essentially decided he's just doing whatever Trump wants him to do, as opposed to and we're supposed to be a, a co-equal branch of government. Yeah. We only function like that in the House, not in the Senate. So... I would have loved to spend more time on your time in uh, the Capitol, state Capitol, because I was there covering part of the end of your speakership. But we we need to talk about what's happening now. And I mean, you've been at the forefront of police issues, as we mentioned, for decades. But you've really taken a lead in recent months um, as the head of the Congressional Black Caucus and the point person on Democrats' police reform bill in the House. Tell us about that bill. You managed to get the entire caucus to come along and a couple of Republicans. And I believe it's now kind of sitting in limbo, right? Well, it's sitting with 200 other bipartisan bills that are just sitting over there. I mean, that's kind of what I was meaning about uh, Mitch McConnell. He just is not doing anything other than confirming judges. And so there was plenty of time to address the HEROES Act and the Justice and Policing Act. And so what we're doing now is trying to do anything we can to put pressure on the uh, Senate so that they will take up the bill. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, this is a real moment in history because, you, like you said, it was pretty amazing that all the Democrats voted for the bill. If it hadn't have been for those hundreds of thousands of people out in the street, I don't think we would have even been voting on this at all. But I will tell you that a number of my Republican colleagues are talking to me very concerned about this uh, legislation and wanting to figure out how they participate. So I haven't given up, haven't given up at all. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, really, its its image has been transformed by what happened with George Floyd and the multiracial uh, protests. People, white people are really thinking about white privilege and systemic racism and that kind of thing. We still have the president initially calling Black Lives Matter like terrorists and anarchists. Um, you're working with the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate, Tim Scott, from South Carolina on the police reform bill. How do you, how confident or hopeful are you? Because uh, I, I can imagine he feels one way as an African-American man, but he's got this you know, caucus of white male Republicans mostly. Exactly. Well, I imagine it's pretty lonely. <laughs> Although, you know, he's a really nice uh, man. I, ho I hope to talk to him later on uh, this week. And I think he has the type of demeanor that, I mean, and he would have to, um, that allows him to get stuff done. He has a good relationship with the president. He's well-respected in his caucus and in his state. 
And so um, I know that he's willing to uh, work together and I look forward to working with him. We actually came in together. Uh, he was in the House first and then he was appointed to the Senate before he ran. So we got to talk about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, the, one of the reasons we brought you here, not just your police reform work, but you are rumored to be on this, you know, pretty uh, exciting short list for Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate. I guess my first question is, like, what has it been like? I mean, you've been doing the rounds, talking to a lot of media, but it must be kind of surreal um, to be in this position. Well, everything that is happening right now is so surreal in our country. And uh, I am completely confident that the vice president is going to pick a running mate. First of all, it's very exciting that he has decided to pick a woman. And, uh, you know, issues specific to me, of course, have to be addressed by the campaign. But uh, it is a surreal moment. And to know that in January, now we're going to have to do everything we can to make sure that he wins, because I just don't know what our country would look like if we had to face four more years of this type of chaos. But I believe that he's going to pick somebody that he can work with well and somebody who can help him lead this country, because just think about what he's going to inherit. I mean, the odds are we could be in a depression by the time January comes and there could be over 200,000 people dead. And then, you know, the president has ripped up our reputation internationally. If he hadn't, we might've been able to have a better whole, uh, manage um, this pandemic better. Joe Biden, of course, is known famously for his empathy and his ability to relate to people who've gone through tragedy. And, you know, like Joe Biden, you had an unimaginable really tragedy strike your family your only daughter and son-in-law were killed in a car crash in 2006 i think they were both just 23 years old and of course that happened very similar to joe biden first of all how, how did you get through that um and i imagine you're still getting through it because no one ever gets through it completely and did you ever have a conversation about it with joe biden you know, um, I've just had a small conversation with him about it. I do hope uh, to get to know him and to talk about it further because I think I can learn a lot from him as to how you manage the grief. Um, you don't ever get over it. You just learn how to manage and survive day to day. It doesn't matter. People tell you, well, in time it gets better. It doesn't, it doesn't at all. It just um, becomes a pain that you learn how to deal with. Do you... I I know some people on the left have been frustrated that um, Biden made the announcement that he would choose a woman on a debate stage, that it, you know, that it would have been more powerful maybe to just do it. Uh, and, and of course, we know that several of the women he's considering, I think the majority, are women of color. What, knowing that we've only had two women ever in our history nominated as vice president, what challenges do you foresee for any woman, particularly a woman of color? Oh, <laughs> I think the challenges are going to be a lot. And you know what I think is going to happen? Because this happened to me, a speaker. Uh, you know, there was a, a woman who was speaker shortly um, for, for a few months. and Republican. Exactly. And I was always compared with her. You know, oh, is she going to last? Oh, is she just going to be a puppet? Oh, she's only going to be there for a few months. And I think um, the woman, and I don't remember her last name. I know her Doris Allen, name. I think it was. Yeah, Doris Allen, that's right. She lasted as speaker for a few months. And so until I got past that four month period, everybody compared me with her. And I think that uh, whichever woman is picked, I think there's gonna be the, the comparison. And then I don't think that's gonna be a pretty one, but I think that is what is gonna happen. 
you know, there's sort of an irony in this moment we're in uh, as we are becoming more aware and seeing all these videos of uh, people uh, who are confronting African-Americans with one crazy thing or another, watching bird, you know, bird watching in Central Park. And, and, and the meme has become Karen. The name Karen, and that's you. Your name, Karen. How does <laughs> what do you feel? make of that? <laughs> you know, the funniest thing was I didn't know that. My young staff told me that like about a month ago. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I saw that. So you know what I was thinking is getting a group of Karens together. I know a number of Karens. They're all African American. Do <laughs> saying, wait a minute. <laughs> we want to take our name back. <laughs> Take back the Karens. Which is um, Judy. <laughs> I like that. So uh, last, probably final question. We noticed that one of the fun things you have done in your life is that you studied martial arts in your 20s. And I imagine that there are some lessons from that that you have brought to politics. Uh, tell us tell us what, I don't know, what, what are you still uh, sort of vibing with around that? Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the reason I studied martial arts was to protect myself. I mean, you know, I tell that to young women um, now, you know, I didn't grow up knowing with the term sexual harassment. Uh, it was called handle it. Uh, so, you know, I studied martial arts to protect myself. And, I, and one of the things that you learn in martial arts is how not to fight, how to avoid conflicts. But if need be, you know, I'd have to hold my own. When's the last time you threw a kick at somebody? <laughs> many, many years. <laughs> I'm sure you've thought about it yeah. many times. Yeah. Yeah. I have a list. <laughs> a proverbial kick may be a little different in Washington, verbal. I suppose. Maybe a verbal, a verbal <laughs> kick. Maybe. All right. So, we're, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that... Um, yeah, we were so happy to have you. And, and I, I think back to your time, I, I know Scott brought up the issue of, uh, you know, being a woman. And, and I, I also read that you talked about always wanting to call on female reporters because of the gender dynamic. And I recall that in uh, in the Capitol. Are you still doing that in the nation's capital, trying to kind of absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, especially if I, if I find they're not, you know, they're being overshadowed. And it's interesting that President Trump often gets into it with women, female, especially women of color. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's just sad. It, he's a mess in so many ways. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to leave it on that note. Congresswoman <laughs> okay. Karen Bass, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> Good. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Katie McMurrin's our engineer. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. Follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.